UC Architects podcast. This is episode 11, recorded Friday, November 2nd, 2012. I'm your host, Pat Richard. Today I'm joined by Link MVP Stahl Hansen, Exchange Architect Michelle DeRoy, Exchange Architect Dave Stark, and Exchange MVP Johan Veldis. And today we have two special guests. Uh, for the first time, uh, Matt Landis, a Link MVP, is joining us. And uh, a return guest, Kevin Peters, a Link MCM, is here. So welcome, guys. We'll start with Stahl. What's up with you? Well, uh, thanks for having me back, Pat. And uh, I'm great. Good. Anything new and exciting? Well, I spent the last week uh, actually doing so a couple of seminars talking about Windows 8, uh, Office uh, 2013, and, uh, and Link 2013. So, yeah, and I have a new role now at, uh, at here as a uh, technical evangelist, so a lot of talking and foilware. Oh, excellent. Great. Uh, Michelle, what's happening with you these days? Well, uh, thanks again for having me, uh, Pat. Um, I had a, an, ev- an uh, event uh, this week uh, where I presented on... Uh, one of your favorite topics, the commandlet extension agents. Oh, excellent! And I also had some work on uh, at a customer where who's who has a site in uh, in New York and it's down uh, at the moment. So we had to arrange uh, some stuff because uh, queues were filling up uh, on internal communications and stuff. So it's uh, interesting work. Not the the cause, but uh, the works around it is. Uh, from a different perspective uh, than usually. Oh, sure. And uh, I tried to get uh, command extension agents to work with uh, issuing some link commands, and unfortunately I couldn't get it to work, but maybe another day. Uh, Dave, what's happening with you? Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, well, uh, I also had uh, was present at the same event as uh, uh, Michel was and, and, and Johan, and I presented uh, a, a piece about uh, the new architecture of uh, Exchange 2013, uh, which was uh, uh, well very interesting to uh, to uh, to give, um, and and other things. Uh, just uh, closing uh, closing up uh, a proof of concept and uh, starting the implementation of a big uh, um, Exchange 2010 impl- implementation. Um, and I actually uh, already uh, got some whispers of um, an Exchange 2013 um, a, a customer that is interested in Exchange 2013 and, uh, and requires a, a technical design in order to make their uh, budget for the next year. So um, uh, we already see some uh, some uh, small Wave 15 stuff happening at uh, at our end. So I'm. Uh, and, uh, already uh, looking uh, very deep into the content and uh, planning to do the exams of 2013. Oh, great, great. Um, Johan, what's happening in your side of the world? Hi, Pat. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> yeah, as uh, Dave already mentioned, uh, there was an event, so I also attended. Did not uh, do a presentation, but uh, answered a lot of questions of people. Uh, besides that, I am also working on a Greenfield uh, ID project, which I uh, am working on for a few months now. And besides that, I'm, I have had a look at a, a link issue with a customer who's got some strange issue, issues, which yeah was pretty nice to look at, but still no solution. So that's the bad side. A little bit of a head-scratcher, huh? Yeah, it is. <laughs> 
Good. Well, and uh, a special guest this week, uh, Matt Landis. I know uh, we've we've given out the Matt Landis tip of the episode uh, in in previous episodes. Uh, Matt's a Link MVP. Matt, welcome. Well, thank you. Uh, appreciate uh, throwing that tip out. Um, I, I'm not sure if I should introduce myself, but I am I'm CEO of Landis Computer, and I also assist with Link implementations. Um, I'm uh, very interested in Link. I'm not sure sometimes if I'm a student or a teacher. Uh, I guess I do a little of both. Uh, I do have a blog, windowspbx.blogspot.com, where uh, I do quite a bit of blogging. And uh, currently, we are involved in several small Link voice implementations. So we're clearing out all the cobwebs and Link voice features. We have two in the USA and one in Europe that we're working on right now. So that's kind of what we're doing. Great, great. It's good to see uh, voice getting some traction with Link. Yeah. And Kevin, my, uh, you know, speaking of uh, whether you're a, a teacher or a student, I'm certainly a student when Kevin's around. So Kevin, what's up with you? <laughs> hey, Pat, and hello, everybody. Thanks for having me again. Uh, let's see, traveling a bunch, doing a lot of Link 2013 planning and still doing some Link 2010 execution. I think, as I, I mentioned last time, I work on a lot of larger deployments. So, you know, some of our deployments are just really getting going on the PBX replacement for, you know, 100 site type uh, deployments. So, <laughs> you know, as Link 2013 is coming around, you know, we're seeing these customers going, oh, great, we can do that in 2014. <laughs> so I'm, I'm learning all the 2013 stuff and labbing and uh, just released an article on OCS guy. Com. So the typical article I write every time a new product comes out, the same one from OCS 2007R2 and Link 2010, just the, kind of the intro and going to take a really long look at Link 2013 and a number of uh, articles there. Yeah, I read that article last night and it's great, especially if you want to mock something up in your lab and, and play around with it. You, uh, you cover you know a lot of detail there, so good stuff. Yeah, there'll be some more parts coming to it. I definitely want to cover the DR part. I think that's the the thing that confuses people the most about Link, other than edge servers and certificates. So, yeah, yeah and especially with the changes in uh, DR from 2010 to 2013, you know, now you've got uh, uh, a lot more flexibility, and it's not as cumbersome. I think. Yeah, definitely. Great. Well, heading into our top stories for the week, um, since our last episode, uh, Microsoft released uh, the cumulative update uh, for Link for October 2012. A lot of people will refer to it as um, CU7, but uh, the correct name is uh, uh, the October 2012 uh, update. And uh, a couple of things um, that we wanted to touch base with here. First, uh, the phone updates have not been released yet. We should see them soon. But uh, unlike uh, previous uh, releases where we saw firmware updates for phones, these are a little bit of a gap between the timelines. Um, and Kevin, you had something uh, that you wanted to mention about uh, about this update. Yeah, the, the big thing with CU7 is uh, the supportability to coexist with Link 2013. So um, that that's the one that caught my eye, right? So the, the idea that um, I need CU7 to do anything Link 2013 is... Uh, really important to me so that's that's the number one reason i'm chasing that patch right now good and uh, of course there is a database update in cu7 so uh, pay attention to the kb article at the bottom where it tells you the manual step to run f to update the the sql tables so don't forget that next up we have um all of the bits and bytes hitting um 
the online portals, MSDN and TechNet and the volume licensing portal uh, from Microsoft. So now you can get your uh, grubby little mitts on, uh, on uh, Exchange and Link and everything. And uh, who here has uh, downloaded it and put it into production already? Um, I have. Uh, I'm currently using Link 2013 for our podcast. So <laughs> I hope uh, it, it's a bit more stable than the, the, the preview uh, customer preview was. Uh, but but uh, uh, liking it uh, so far, uh, it's uh, at least Office is a lot uh, faster with startups. Um, uh, so and, and and still still have to uh, do some real hard work. But uh, for Exchange and Link, uh, I've downloaded them, but I haven't really done anything with them uh, yet. So. Uh, I, I only have the uh, uh, client side experience at the moment. Yeah, and I'm I'm using the client as well. We did uh, download um, both Exchange and Link, and we did move our mailboxes internally over to Exchange, and we've integrated uh, OWA with uh, Exchange 2013. And I'm still working on uh, rolling out uh, Link 2013, but uh, I'm sure everybody here is probably uh, mocking it up in the labs and everything, right? Oh yeah, that, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Good. And uh, of course, the the much hyped event, uh, or one of the much hyped events, was uh, the release of Microsoft's uh, Surface tablet. And of course, that's going to do big things for uh, mobility with uh, Exchange and Link. And uh, I know Kevin, you got a new Surface, and uh, and I got one as well. And I've been playing around with it. Uh, what did you think of yours? So I just got them today and literally unboxed them about 11 a.m. and it's 6 now, or 5.30 now. So I haven't had it very long and I was working most of the day. Um, so far, I, I really like the uh, – I, I got both the touch and the type covers and I really like the type cover a little bit better than touch. Uh, and the device is pretty darn cool to start with. I'm not overly thrilled with the Link MX experience yet, um, specifically some of the HID stuff not working and whatnot. But – you know, um, it's it's a Rev One, so hopefully that comes along sooner than later. But otherwise, I think it's you know it's going to be a good productivity device for me when I'm traveling. You know, the one thing that I did not like about the Link client so far, um, unless I'm missing something, is you cannot apparently reorganize your groups, and so some of your groups you know, scroll off to the right side there, and there seems to be no way of reorganizing those so that you're more your more often used groups are are on the screen. Um, that was somewhat unnerving, but from a device perspective, uh, I thought it was a fabulous device for for a, a Gen One device. Uh, I think Microsoft hit it out of the park on that. There's a couple of little quirks that um, I think could be improved on. Um, uh, just like you, Kevin, I've got the Type and the Touch covers, um, and. One thing I notice is if you fold the cover all the way back, so you're using it as a pure tablet with the on-screen uh, keyboard, the, uh, the the keyboard that's folded over on the back blocks the rear-facing camera, at least the lower half of it. And so somebody wasn't thinking when they when they did that. <laughs> um, a couple other things: um, the kickstand is fabulous, although I don't know why they didn't put a little cutout on the right side instead of just the left side. I mean, most people are right-handed. You'd think uh, that would make sense. Um, and then there was another issue that's popped up in the last uh, few days that people are talking about online, and that is um, B 
being able to uh, utilize uh, the SD card as uh, a local disc instead of a removable disc so that you can store your music on it. Um, there's a little bit of uh, discussion about that. But uh, the rest of it, I thought, uh, has been fabulous. Um, the, the power cord, I think, was um, kind of a poor design. It's nice that it uses magnets, but um, it's not USB. It's a proprietary cable, I think, which was a mistake. Um, I think they, they could have done better. Um, Kevin, you had uh, something else about it as well. Yeah, so um, the, the, I forgot to mention this a minute ago. Um, the type cover or the touch cover didn't work for me for uh, when I first got it today. And I ended up going to, to the support chat, spent about a half hour doing various things, refreshing the the PC, which that's a new term for me. They said, have you refreshed it yet? Which is going to settings, change PC settings. And then there's a, a refresh option, option buried in there where you can refresh it without losing your data. So I'm not really, I haven't looked into what that does yet, but you know, apparently that's the end all be all fix, right? And it didn't fix it either. So I tried a couple things like cleaning the contacts with alcohol and that didn't work. So out of frustration, I grabbed my type cover and I'm like, I'm just going to try this one. And of course the type cover worked immediately. Then I unplug the or pull off the type cover and plug the the touch cover back in, and it starts working automatically. So I was kind of just a little shocked by you know how flaky the the touch cover experience was at first. It seems to be fine now, but I read through a number of other people who had that same issue. So I don't know if it's some kind of maybe it's residue that's on the the connectors or something from from the factory, and you just disconnecting it, reconnecting it a bunch of times fixes it. I don't know, but that was one of the other things they had me do. So that was a little bit of an annoyance, you know, that you don't want that new device straight out of the box to have a flaky behavior like that. Exactly. Especially, uh, you know, one that you order ahead of time and have to wait for, uh, you know, a week or two for it to show up. But how's the, how's the battery life? Because I'm, 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 I personally have an iPad too, uh, and I love the, the battery life and, uh, and I have a keyboard with it so I can do a bit of productive stuff, but iOS is, is uh, well, not designed for that. But uh, my main interest for the service is that you can probably do more product productive stuff. Uh, but then I am wondering about what what about uh, uh, well, battery life? Have you any experience about that? Mine mine has been fabulous. Um, I D- define fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that mine is on par with my iPad One. So that's that's about eight or ten hours continuous um, work. Yeah, at least you can go uh, twenty four hours without recharging if you don't use it continuously. I, I've charged mine uh, twice in the past week. Um, okay. Now I haven't I haven't right. necessarily used it heavily every day, but um, I, I put it on the charger earlier today and it was only. Uh, about halfway uh, drained. So um, it, it's been very good on battery life. Um, uh, another thing that I, I really kind of like is the whole integration with the Microsoft account. Um, it, it synchronizes all your settings back and you can apply those settings on other computers. So uh, as an example, uh, yesterday I reloaded my uh, laptop through some new SSD drives in there, um, through Windows 8 on it, uh, added it to the domain, and as soon as I tied my Microsoft account to um, to my domain account, it brought over, you know, all my settings, my wallpaper, um, all that stuff. I thought that was uh, uh, very clever. So that's that's kind of a nice uh, a nice touch. 
And and it's also uh, multi-user capable, isn't it? Uh, yes. Yes. Now the uh, the RT uh, you cannot domain join it, so there is that limitation. Um, but uh, other things, I, I think uh, most of the apps that I was looking for, I found in the App Store. I think I saw somewhere where uh, 46 of the top 50 uh, uh, mobile apps are in the App Store. Uh, I definitely have uh, you know several screens full of of uh, of tiles on mine. But I, I've been I've been pretty happy with it. I I have not used um, a Link to do audio or video yet. I, uh, I will be doing that here, uh, in the next week. Uh, but the rest of it, I, I think has been, um, a, a good solid hit. I think Microsoft came out with a pretty good product. Um, I'm waiting to see, uh, how the pro version is. I'll probably get one of those too, but, uh, uh but for now, this will keep me busy. For those of, how are the, um, uh, because the service RT has an USB two. Uh, connector, but well, you have limitations with legacy apps or the the, the, the classical Intel apps. Um, th th did you run in any issues with uh, printers or other devices like that? Um, I haven't tried uh, printers or anything with it, and of course, it, it you're, you're right. It's a USB two port. That is not that was not a Microsoft decision. That is a limitation on the ARM processor. It only supports USB two. Um, I have not plugged anything into it other than a thumb drive just to make sure it was working, see what the experience was with uh, with uh, files and things like that. That seems to be working fine. I was able to um, uh, play around with some wireless devices with it. Um, the Wi-Fi integration was, was perfect. Um, I have really not found too many things uh, to complain about other than the, the keyboard blocking the, uh, the rear-facing camera. Um, I think it's it's been pretty pretty solid. Okay, I'm very interested in it. So uh, when it comes here in the Netherlands, I'll uh, I'll uh, I probably want to have a hands-on uh, moment with it before I spend my money on it. But uh, and especially uh, also the, the compared with the uh, Surface Pro uh, tablet. I, uh, yesterday or. or uh, was in the um, uh, well in the in the Netherlands we have in, in Amsterdam uh, a Windows 8 brand store so it, it's just to display all the different Windows 8 devices um, unfortunately not the uh, Surface uh, but I did uh, see some um, um, Intel based um, uh, tablets uh, the, I think the Samsung T700 or something like that. Um, and I was a bit disappointed about the battery life that I saw uh, demoed, and it was just the the, the time in, in in Windows, and it was about well uh, four hours or something like that. Um, and uh, well, that would be a very important issue for me uh, deciding between uh, either the the Surface RT or the Pro version of Surface, or uh, or other RT tablets and, and Windows 8 uh, tablets, um, because I want to have a full day uh, uh, of, of usage out of that device. So I'm very interested in how that uh, is going to de develop. Yeah, my uh, the first couple of days that I had mine, I definitely uh, you know was playing with it throughout the day and um, was very happy with battery life. And uh, so, Kevin, uh, having played with yours for, you know, albeit just a few hours, 
is this a game changer for for mobility and link and unified communications? <laughs> so I, the tough part for me is that it's not a very good link experience yet, right? Um, you're limited on what you can do if you use an MX client and the HID stuff. So basically all the button integration with things like headsets and stuff like that isn't working for me. I don't know if that's expected or not. Um, so... I'd say it's a game changer for a lot of things, right? I think it's a game changer as far as Microsoft having a really strong consumer device. And I'd say it's a, a really good, you know, device for productivity as well. So I think that's that's a real difference between that and the iPad. I mean, it was mentioned earlier, you know, someone, uh, they said, uh, you know, I did a little bit of predictive stuff, but that's not really what it's meant to do. And that's that's really right. iPad's not really meant to do things like create PowerPoints and write Word docs and stuff like that. It can do a little bit of it, but it's not great. Whereas the Surface really does shine at doing all that stuff. I mean, I did send a lot of email from it. I did do some web browsing, but it was productive web web browsing. And I did write a couple documents on it. And I think it was, you know, I think it's pretty darn good at the the productivity stuff. And it's pretty good at the consumer stuff. So I think it changes the, the market landscape a lot. Whether it's a game changer for mobility, I just don't know yet. I need... You know, I need to see MX happen a little more, or I'm going to have to switch over to using just regular Link on it. And I don't know what that experience is like yet. And I've I've understand that there is no Outlook on the Surface IT. Uh, it has Office 2013, but it's just the home um, um, uh, home version without. Uh, well, for me, the interesting stuff Outlook. Right. It has um, it has the Mail client. Um, which is essentially an ActiveSync client. It does allow you to um, configure multiple accounts, um, but Exchange treats it just like an ActiveSync device, uh, which is interesting because as soon as I connected mine, my Exchange server quarantined it. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah. you, you, do, you do not have the full functionality of the Outlook client. Um, it works pretty well. Um, for a you know a stripped down client, um, but I can certainly see where you know people that are you know your your power users um, could see something really missing in that aspect. Um, you know, like like Kevin mentioned, you know I I went through and and was writing documents and and sending emails and things like that mainly to test the two keyboards. Be, um, you know. Uh, the touch keyboard, which is about three millimeters thick, um, is very nice. It, it works a lot better than I thought it would. Uh, and the type keyboard, which has more of a laptop keyboard feel to it. Um, but, uh, yeah, from an email client perspective, there's a little bit of a gap there. But for a consumer device, I think it's fabulous. Um, it is cap- The, the uh, email client is capable of connecting to non uh, exchange servers like Gmail and things like that. Um, the, can it, uh, how's the um, OWA twenty thirteen experience with the Surface RT? Uh, that that was fabulous. Uh, we yeah. just moved to uh, twenty thirteen for Exchange in the last two days, so I've only used it a little bit with OWA, uh, but it's been rock solid. I, I definitely have no complaints there uh, compared to, um, you know, more conventional uh, laptop or workstation experience. 
Right. It does it does it also provide the offline capability of uh, OWA 2013? Because that would be um, 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 a real competitor for the mail app, the just ju just the ActiveSync mail app for when you don't have Wi-Fi access. Uh, you know what? To be honest, I have not tested that yet. Okay. Well, keep me informed if you if you do test it. Uh, Yep, and 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 Kevin, you know, talked about uh, it being a great uh, consumer device, and of course, Microsoft released the um, the Skype client for uh, in the App Store, and that is a fabulous experience. That is a great client. They really uh, they really did themselves good with this one. So, uh, I agree, Kevin. This is going to be a great consumer device. I think we're going to see a lot of these. Now, from a hardware perspective. Kevin, what did you think? Were you happy with the hardware? So if it had a full-blown version of Windows 8 on it, um, it's it's a hit? Or did you find some issues there as well? You know, so far, so I had a slate up until um, I got the Surface. I still have the slate. I didn't just throw it in the trash when the Surface came. Um, so I've been using the slate with Windows 8 since the early, early releases that they they gave out months and months and months ago. And I've always loved that experience. So I'm excited, um, probably more so for the the Pro than the RTs. I didn't actually go out and bought the uh, buy the RTs; they were a gift. Um, so I, you know, I got them kind of out of default. I would have never bought them since I had the Slate, and it's such a good productivity device for me. Um, but I can see where the Surface, from a hardware perspective, especially when they have the Pro option, will be able to match what my my Slate does, or my yeah, my Slate does, and it has a better keyboard option than my Slate. And I, I like that idea. I don't think either one of them are going to replace my my laptop sitting on my desk at home with my two monitors and all my outboard stuff unless they have some kind of docking option come out with a Pro. Uh, but I, I really think the hardware is good stuff and that they're they're nice devices. And, you know, I, I fully intend to use the heck out of them. And I know my, my son, who's seven, has been using my Slate um, just pretty exclusively lately. He loves the thing. He's on it more than like his 3DS or um, his his computer. And I'm I'm totally you know into the idea that he really likes this device, uh, the Slate. And I can't wait to hand him the Surface, which I'm going to do right after this call. <laughs> and and you had mentioned that you prefer the the type uh, keyboard over the touch keyboard. Um, why was that? You it, you're just more comfortable with that that style keyboard or the touch one just didn't work very well for you i think it's a feel thing um i think when i'm you know when i'm bouncing around from place to place i'll probably have both in my bag but i think when i'm when i'm set up somewhere and i'm like where i want to be in work mode um i'm gonna have the type keyboard out but i think when when i'm going place to place or when i'm not in an all-out work mode i think the touch cover is going to be better Kevin, one one of the questions I had is relation to using it on your lap. A laptop kind of gives you it gives form. How how does the how does the surf? I don't have one yet, and I'm thinking to get yeah. one. But how does how's that experience? I have no idea. I haven't. Uh, it's it's literally sat on my desk the entire t entire day today. So, so I, I I can I can speak to that because I saw somebody okay. online asking about it. So it's it's not the same. Um, mm -hmm. You don't have um, kind of a a stiff hinge um, mm -hmm. on the surface like you do on a laptop. So there's, it, unless you pull the, the, the kickstand out on the back, um, it's not the same as having a laptop. And it can be a little... Um, a little tipsy maybe? Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it 
if you get the hang of it, you, you, you can get it to work. But um, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. definitely not designed to be sitting on your lap. It's, you know, it's designed to be either held in your hand as, you know, as a tablet with, with the keyboard folded around back or sitting on a, a firm surface with the kickstand out. Um, but on your lap, I think, um, I think that's an issue. And I, I don't really think it was targeted for that either. And you're probably right. You know, when in a lap scenario, they're probably figuring you're using it as a tablet. Right. That's, that's probably, yeah. Right. And, and, and it works, well, it works fine well, in that aspect. Well, uh, 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 personally, I have uh, an iPad with a, a Logitech uh, a case, uh, a keyboard case, and, and you can uh, just hinge it in. Um, and I use it on my lap during the Microsoft Exchange conference, and, and that, uh, because they didn't have any uh, tables or, or anything like that, and it, it worked, but um, I think that that is, for me, it's an important issue uh, when you have long, uh, uh, well, conference days um, and want to take notes or, or Twitter or, or anything like that. So uh, that was also an issue, well, issue uh, the topic I was interested in. I, I do think that because the, the, with the, the issue I had with the iPad keeping it on my lap all day long was that I had to, to keep my uh, legs very tight together because otherwise it f- would fell fall between my legs. Um, is that a bit better with the uh, surface because it has an, an, another form factor because it's more uh, uh, more has more width? Or didn't you try that? Um, I, I don't know that it's any different. Uh, when I was at Mac, I used my my iPad One with just the on-screen keyboard. Um, that seemed to work fine. Right. Uh, the experience with uh, the Surface and the on-screen keyboard, I think, is a little better because it is a little bit wider. Um, I think the keyboard fits my hands uh, a, a little bit better. Um, and, of course, the, the keyboard's just, you know, if you everybody has seen these commercials now, they just snap on and snap off. So um, if you want to switch from the type to the, to the touch keyboard, um, it, it's very simple. Or if you just want to take the keyboard off, it's, uh, it works great. Does does it does the surface detect when you detach the? Uh, yeah. Just oh, yes. Okay. Yep. It's okay. completely seamless to the end user. Oh, th- oh, that that's perfect because with the iPad you have to connect it with Bluetooth and so it doesn't know when you want to really fast switch to another uh, mode, as it were. So that that oh, that's yeah. A it's thing. so it's held on by magnets, um, and they're fairly strong magnets too. You can hold the uh, the uh, surface up by. Uh, just the keyboard and, and and shake it gently, and it's not going to let loose. Um, gently was the keyword. Yeah, <laughs> I I wouldn't start spinning it around like a windmill or anything like that. But um, you can certainly hold the unit up completely just by holding on to the to the keyboard. Um, but you know, it comes off real easy. It uses magnets, like I mentioned, but it makes a a um, has little contacts on the edge, so it makes a a regular connection. It doesn't use wireless to connect to the surface. So you don't have that complexity. Um, and, and also because of that, it doesn't require any batteries for the keyboard. It completely takes power off of the, uh, the surface itself. Um, and well, uh, well, one thing I wanted to mention was the, uh, uh lack of 3g or uh, mobile internet as where well. you have Wi-Fi. Um, do you think the, that is going to be an issue for, well, mobility sake, uh, lack of 3G, 4G, LTE, or whatever it is that, that the country has? So I, 
I've heard some people uh, talking about this. It's not an issue for me for a couple reasons. One, I'm almost always near um, a Wi-Fi connection that I trust, or I have uh, a MiFi, um, an LTE MiFi unit that I can pair it with. Um, so either way, I can stay connected. Is it an issue with not having 3G? I could see some people saying it is. Um, I I think that's a little bit overblown, though. I don't I don't think it's a big deal. Well, one thing I was uh, thinking about is that possibly Microsoft could uh, add it later uh, via the uh, USB port, uh, such capability. Um, that would be a, a nice option to keep the the overall price of the Surface RT low and add the option for those who really need it to um, uh, well, buy an extension for that. But uh, we'll have to see whether that could, be, could work. Right, right, good point. And I haven't really seen any uh, accessories popping up other than, you know, just, just the keyboards. Now, the, the, mine came with the, type key, or the touch keyboard, um, and I ponied up the money for the type keyboard. Uh, it's a little stiff. Uh, what is it, Kevin? About 120 bucks, I think, for the type keyboard. Um, yeah, I think it's 10 bucks more than the regular one if it, if yours doesn't come with it. Yeah. So, so a lot of people were kind of grumbling about that. I, to me, it was no big deal. I think it's a, a fabulous device and it, it didn't really bother me. I've only used the type keyboard a couple of times. I'm not sure if I'm going to get a lot of use out of it. I got it more because I was a little bit leery about the the touch keyboard, but it's actually um, it's actually working out very well. It's it's far more sensitive than I thought it would be. It's very thin. It seems to be accurate. Um, so I've I've had no no issues there. You know, the other thing I'd really like to know, and I, I think this is going to be a really common question, is with the RT, can you get away with a pin? So I've mentioned my love of my slate, the Asus uh, slate I had before. Um, so what I look for out of the surface is the idea of, of replacing what I did with my slate. And what I did with my slate most of the time was it went to pre-sales meetings with me, or it went to conferences. It w- went to scenarios where I didn't have hardcore work to do staring at staring at logs and RDPing into servers and things where screen real estate really come into play. And one of the things I loved about my slate was I took it to masters with me and I used OneNote. And so I had, you know, a slate with OneNote recording audio and then I drew diagrams right on the screen and then I'd flip it up into a a keyboard mode and start typing on a keyboard. So what I really want to see is if the RT can do any kind of pen input and if not the pro and then I'd, I'd really like to have one device because I'm, I'm kind of big on that one device, get out, you know, keep everything on that one device and back it up and, and have it do everything. So I could see, you know, a ton of value if, if the RT or the uh, Pro comes out and it's got a nice touch experience and it can do, you know, a good lap kind of design and, and things like that. If not, I, I kind of see myself going for one of those devices that's almost like an old school tablet where the screen spins and drops or something like that because the... The idea of drawing and taking notes by hand, um, it's so distracting in meetings to have clicking and whatnot when people are talking. I find it much more polite to use a pen in a meeting and pen and paper. So I love the idea of having some writing options and some drawing options. So you can do pen-based input um, on the Surface. Um, In fact, it does let you switch between multiple uh, different keyboard layouts. Um, 
such as the split keyboard like you can on the iPad, which I think is a nice touch. If you're, a, a, if you're holding it up in front of you, you can type with just your two thumbs um, by splitting the keyboard out so that it's closer to the edge. And it does let you do some pen-based input. I haven't really done too much with that yet, uh, but that option is there, and, and uh, I've, I've heard some pretty good things with it. So I, I was uh, just looking at the keyboard, and you can um, do pen-based input, um, and it does let you specify different keyboard uh, layouts, like a split keyboard like you can on the iPad. So if you hold it up in front of you, you can type, uh, say, with your two thumbs, because it splits the keyboard out uh, closer to the edges, as well as uh, some pen-based input. I haven't really played with the pen stuff yet, but uh, the option is there. And of course, uh, Kevin, like you, I'm a big fan of OneNote, and uh, we'll definitely be putting it to use uh, this week in some conferences. So the RT didn't come with a pen, or no, it did it not. Okay. Um, I have found that it it is um, some of the issues I've had with, uh, say, my iPad, where it wasn't as sensitive to my fingers as um, as I thought it should be. That that issue I have not seen on the surface. Um, it it seems to be very responsive. Okay, so uh, moving along. Our next topic is um, we got some feedback about uh, the last episode where we discussed uh, building a link lab. And so this week we wanted to cover building an exchange lab and some of the things that you might want to consider uh, when doing that. Of course, it's always important to test things in a lab before rolling them out to production, as well as just getting used to uh, a product um, in general. And so I know I think most of us here have uh, labs either at home or at work or both. Um, and we wanted to share some experiences with you. So, um, Dave, what did you uh, want to discuss about labs? Well, uh, I'm uh, working uh, to get a, a company-wide lab uh, for, for some time now, but because of priorities and, 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 uh, and stuff like that, it's, it's a bit on the back burner. Um, so for me, I'm now focusing on a, a laptop uh, as an uh, exchange lab, or more more accurately, uh, uh, as a as a Wave 15 lab, because I want to uh, see the site mailboxes. So uh, I have to use SharePoint. Uh, I want to see the link integration. So I also have to have link. Um, so that is going to take uh, well. Uh, so. It probably has to take about four or five servers on, on, on a laptop. Um, and I'm currently um, talking with our internal IT uh, for a specific uh, model. And um, it, it's probably going to be a, a, a Dell laptop, which can contain uh, 32 gigs of uh, memory and um, a, a nice quad-core proce processor uh, and a uh, obviously a uh, solid-state disk. Um, and that that last one is actually kind of a hard demand for me because uh, I've talked to other colleagues who also have uh, such uh, lab setups and they said they previously uh, used just the classical magnetic uh, disks and uh, well that really really limits your capabilities for a lab so um, I'm, I'm focusing on, on a, at least one SSD and then um, um, a second disk 
just a classical or perhaps even a hybrid or preferably, but that's uh, a question of cost, obviously, uh, is uh, another SSD uh, disk. Um, and because it's a laptop, I'm, I'm uh, going to use that for, uh, well, uh, demonstrations um, uh, all around the world, well, not the world, but uh, all uh, around the Netherlands. And, um, well, I have to take into account that it's possible that um, power is an issue or in the train it's going to be an issue. So I also ordered a, a, an enlarged um, battery pack, uh, which adds some, some extra uh, power to your laptop and especially when you're going to uh, run uh, a heavy lab that's probably going to be very helpful especially uh, uh, if you don't have any power uh, during a presentation that would be uh, <laughs> that would suck if your laptop just dies on you during a presentation or a demonstration because your battery isn't big enough um, well and that's uh, and, and one thing I'm, I'm still considering is whether I'm uh, going to run uh, Windows 8 on my laptop um, and use the built-in Hyper-V uh, capabilities or uh, I'm still playing it a bit safe and uh, running Windows 7 and just using a uh, VM workstation uh, uh, installation for all my uh, uh, virtual machines. So that's one discussion I'm not, well, one, one point I'm not very um, certain about. It also depends on whether the hardware of the laptop is uh, completely supported by Windows 8. Uh, I already saw some things that, that could be a showstopper. So, um, uh, well, that, 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 those things are, are the things I'm uh, currently considering um, for a portable app. Um, I I'm, I'm, did not consider anything yet on a personal lab or a company lab that is more uh, on site or anything like that because uh, w well one thing is that um, that uh, I sometimes I, I'm not sure whether I have internet access and when I want to do a presentation or a demo because that's one also one of the things that I want to do with a lab um, I have to be sure that I can access it and with a laptop I don't have that issue I already have my lab with that um, so that's uh, at least uh, well my those are my considerations for for having a portable app and that also um, uh, well does uh, contain uh, well contain some other issues than a uh, a home lab or 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 a on-site lab so that were my thoughts about that at least yeah well I have um, my my own lab on uh, at home a small server, not a really big one, and just rebuild it with uh, Windows uh, Server 2012 Hyper-V server. And uh, I installed both uh, Exchange 2013 and, uh, and Link, and yeah, it, it works great. And I don't don't forget to also add a uh, uh, virtual uh, load balancer to your uh, environment. There are you know, several vendors which offer uh, a virtual uh, Appliance, which can be easily added to uh, to most virtual uh, virtual machines, such as uh, VMware, Hyper-V, and uh, Accenture, and you can easily uh, test some things with uh, with high availability, especially when using Exchange 2010 and 2013. It's yeah, really nice to have such a device in your lab. I think. Uh, what's your opinion about that, uh, Dave? Uh, about having a, a virtual load balancer, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
certainly it, it's something you have to have. Uh, actually, one of the things that started uh, with my request for having, well, it started with I want I want an exchange lab because I want at least to um, test uh, different kind of load balancers, um, especially the the uh, if you, if you look at the camps, uh, the, the those are uh, quite uh, cheap um, and uh, do their work perfectly for uh, for just exchange uh, 2010 availability uh, but sometimes you also have environments that uh, have Citrix net scalers and uh, because they already have Citrix so you are sort of forced to use them and uh, well it, it helps to have that capability of running well at least the, the virtual um, versions of those load balancers and most of the load balancing companies have virtual uh, additions and uh, and most of the times the, the the look and feel and the configuration options are exactly the same. So that a lab yep. is is perfectly um, and, and and it's safe to uh, just uh, change a setting and and look what what the consequence of that is. And especially with with the Exchange 2010 uh, with the CAS array, that's in my, in in my experience of. Uh, uh, if you have issues, connectivity issues with with Outlook, you have to look at at the load balancer first, and uh, if you have a lab and you can test things, that uh, would add uh, immensely to your um, um, experience and, and uh, especially also the availability. Yeah, especially the the, the one-armed or two-armed uh, configuration steps, which are uh, recommended by vendors. It's yeah, and it's nice to test them because yeah. it's always fun <laughs> when implementing the, uh, them in the in the real field. What you uh, you will find out, but yeah, when you can test it in your own lab, it makes it a lot easier to, to implement it uh, with on customer sites. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's much safer, and well, you could do uh, a, a second VIP, but then you have to be very careful with the whole other exchange configuration. Um, so yeah. Um, I did found uh, because I have a, a, a quite a I have a gaming desktop here at home uh, which which has eight gigs of RAM has a has a quad core. Unfortunately, no SSD as of as of yet. Uh, uh, I found that that is one 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 uh, big issue. But 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 also I, I found some uh, difference in in um, uh, how do you say that in in, in robustness of Exchange twenty ten when you just Give give the server less memory. Uh, I found that with especially with the Exchange 2013 preview, that it 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 just requires more memory to work more yeah. solid. Is is that your experience as well? Yeah, that's my experience. As well, with uh, Exchange 2010, I can give my machine you know, well two week, and now with 2013, I will need to give it at least four gig. Because else it doesn't work uh, work nice, but yeah, it probably has to do with uh, with the changes um, they've made in the architecture. But yeah. yeah, I was pretty amazed by it that it was uh, yeah needed those amount of uh, more amount of memory compared to the 2010. Yeah, that that so, was also one thing uh, that I, and I noticed, and it it actually um, prompted me to push push harder for a for a lab. Uh, or in in my case now uh, a laptop with a lot of memory, and that yeah. that also that only gets worse when you want to do uh, well a DAG with two servers 
or you want to uh, look at the SharePoint integration or the link integration, um, uh, how that yeah. is uh, performing. And uh, I, I actually think that I'm uh, a bit at the limit of my desktop computer now at, at the moment. I, and, and I really have to uh, uh, level up, as it were, with my, uh, my lab. And I think that that's, that's something that people will um, probably also notice. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that that that's the, the the biggest problem of of most people. Most people don't have uh, either a laptop which has much memory and SSD because yeah, SSD is not as uh, yeah as cheap as uh, as normal HDs. So a lot of uh, uh, employees will will not give uh, SSD to the to their uh, yeah to their coworkers. So yeah, I think it's uh, yeah at this moment it's pretty hard to uh, to look what uh, you really need. But yeah, as, well, as what you mentioned, you yeah the things you you need in your lab is SSD, uh, a lot of memory and yeah pretty much processing power, you know, especially when uh, you want to test all Huawei 15 products. Yeah, but what you are saying now is that you actually need a small data center in your house, just like Pat has. <laughs> <laughs> and from my from my point of view, I invested in some hardware two years ago, and yeah, that's it's a recurring issue every year. You need to invest in to uh, because the resources, uh, especially with the 2013 uh, resources like memory, um, it, it's a bit tight at the moment. Uh, um, I'm a very patient person, but and I'm one to. Yeah, uh, uh, discover something for for, for a customer or write a blog about a, some topic. It takes a whole lot of, a lot of time uh, to uh, to set up the lab. So uh, you need to maintain uh, that stuff as well. So what I've done is um, I've shared storage. Uh, I suppose the Synology where I put all my v VMs on. And um, yeah, depending on what I want to investigate or what I want to write on, I fire up uh, a lab which I segmented in some uh, some subnets and using that and the TMG and uh, 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 some uh, virtual load balances I I get along so yeah and what's yeah, also an option. what's nice too is um, you can build uh, virtual routers uh, as well in your lab environment so that you can really have completely separate su uh, subnets um, so you can simulate uh, you know, WAN connections or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, I've got uh, kind of a bigger lab at home where I'm able to mock up just about any scenario. Uh, but certainly the ability to shut some VMs down and, and spin up a completely different scenario, you know, you want to build a, a, a cross-forest migration uh, scenario or a, a 2007 to 2010 or 2013 upgrade, uh, VMs are, are definitely the way to go. Yeah, completely, completely agree uh, with both of you. So, what other scenarios do you guys typically mock up in your labs? Are you duplicating a customer environment? Are you, um, you know, multi-role versus dedicated role? Um, you know, I'm sure there's probably a little bit of everything in there. But um, what what have you really found beneficial with having a lab? Um, so some things that um, are not always documented by Microsoft. 
Um, one instance was well uh, with the uh, I also blogged about that uh, about where now okay now we have the Exchange 2013 RTM uh, is now released and 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 now we also have the uh, setup files. Uh, but what kind of limitations do you now have for installation? Well, one one thing is that uh, for Exchange 2010 we have to wait on Suspect 3. Uh, so uh, in a in a in a competitive standpoint, Link has it better now because of the October 2012 Link uh, update, uh, which enables the 2013 coexistence. Um, but uh, one thing that wasn't documented is that. Um, some customers do uh, do a scheme prep, schema prep with Exchange 2010 or a previous uh, version of uh, Exchange, um, in order to get some of the custom attributes, um, and 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 most of them do that because they don't want to manually uh, extend the schema themselves uh, in, in case they run into issues and and stuff like that. Um, so they do the schema prep. Uh, don't install any Exchange servers. Um, and uh, well, one question that I got quite a, quite a lot was uh, whether that wasn't deployment blocker for Exchange 2013. It it's uh, you're not you, you, well in one point of view it's it's a greenfield um, situation, but uh, from an Active Directory schema standpoint, it is definitely not a greenfield situation. So that is one thing that I could perfectly test in an. Um, in a demo environment, and that is something you don't want to do in a production environment, uh, because you could wreck something or, or whatever. Um, and uh, well, that was uh, just very easily tested with virtual machines. I just deployed a template, made an Active Directory schema prep, and then uh, went ahead and tried to install Exchange 2013, which, uh, by the way, didn't block anything. So you can install it. So that was uh, quite important knowledge because otherwise uh, the, the customer in uh, in question possibly would have waited uh, when uh, Suspect 3 uh, was uh, made available and that could add uh, several months to their deployment uh, scheme and uh, in, in some cases that it can also mean uh, that some people are on vacation or not available and stuff like that. So it can, can have a lot of impact on those kind of uh, testing scenarios. Yeah, I think the, the very first time where I really found having a lab beneficial is I needed to test the domain rename process. And of course, that's, that's something that's hard to back out of. Um, so we were able to mock up um, the customer's environment it was a very small customer, a couple hundred uh, users. Uh, but basically, we did we did some uh, semi P to V migrations where we we migrated a, a DC uh, into the virtual environment and then essentially kept the the physical hardware up in the live environment and just used the virtual one in the lab environment. And then we were able to kind of go through the whole domain rename process uh, and see how it would affect their particular environment. And it, it, it worked great. We were able to find all the little uh, quirks about it, um, nail down the process and everything, and make sure that there weren't going to be any surprises using um, an actual domain controller from, from the production environment. And, um, and that, that was beneficial. And I've, I've certainly seen um, other clients do the same thing where they, they uh, either do a P2V of a physical box or they restore 
um, a domain controller into the lab environment to 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 bring up uh, uh, an identical domain with uh, the the same AD schema and and everything, and that seems to work uh, very well. And of course, you know, uh, even you know, Kevin, you guys. Um, from a link perspective, can certainly agree that having a lab to test updates and new products um, is certainly beneficial. No, no, no. You just push patches without testing them. <laughs> I have a I have a script for that, but that's that's besides the point. <laughs> no, absolutely. Testing patches and testing new functionality, you have to have a lab for that. You can't do that in production. So that's. That's a big deal. Um, I think all of us, you know, all the all the guys on my team, uh, we all have labs, you know, and we beat the heck out of them. Yeah, and and, and somebody was joking about you know a, a data center like I have. I, I I do have a bigger lab. I have a four node Hyper V cluster uh, in my basement with uh, three drive shelves and uh, and some stuff. I've got probably sixty five VMs running at any given time, um, but I did that. Uh, almost exclusively, uh, with the exception of some hard drives, from eBay. And I was able to get some uh, Dell 1950s, which have processors that support VT, so I was able to run uh, Hyper-V on them. I was able to you know, max them out uh, with memory, uh, add some extra NICs in them and things like that, and it was, it was all very reasonable by doing it through uh, eBay and some uh, some discounters and things like that, so you don't have to go out and buy a big blade chassis and, and fill it full of you know high end equipment. You can certainly uh, uh, skimp wherever you need to. Yeah, I'll say I I built um, I have a two node lab. It's not clustered, and I don't have a SAN or anything like that. I just have a bunch of five hundred gig drives. I don't buy them any bigger than that because I I like to get the extra spindles in instead of the extra drive size. And both of my uh, lab machines are from Micro Center. And what I do is I've been on an 18-month rotation for the last five or six years. And every 18 months, I buy a new lab machine. And I basically double the spec of the last one every 18 months. And I keep the last one around and then the new one. So I'm about six months into the current lab. And in another 12 months, I'll buy another machine to double that spec and get rid of the third one. So it's very, very critical to have a good lab. So, I mean, if you're a... You're professional, you're a consultant doing these kinds of things. People pay you to know the answers or to be able to find the answers. And I just can't do that on a, a laptop lab, unfortunately. So right now I have 12 cores and 48 gigs of memory running my lab. So not quite what you have, but uh, it's still, it's decent enough. Right. And um, for those that haven't seen it, uh, Jeff Guillet, who is an exchange uh, MVP and MCM, uh, documented the process for building uh, what he considers the ultimate little uh, lab box. It's screaming fast. He did it for, I think, under $1,000. And he's even got some uh, videos at how well it performs. Um, and we'll get those uh, a link to that up on uh, the summary page. But he's he's had very good success with that. And I know that quite a few people have uh, uh, duplicated that machine and I've been pretty happy with it. So moving along, we wanted to talk uh, for a couple minutes about uh, Link VDI and what is it and how does it work. And um, and so Kevin and Matt and Stahl, you guys all had uh, some comments on that. Kevin? Yeah, so um, the Link VDI plugin is a, a great new thing. Um, 
I see, you know, many enterprises looking to do things like deliver desktops down to a, an end user station without having to have, you know, crazy hardware down at each end user level. Um, it's really common, and one of my customers in particular is doing this right now. They have about eighteen thousand people, and they're rolling out some of them. And the cool thing is, this is, you know, it's a kind of like a link applet almost that runs on the thin client. So although you're still getting the full user experience on your desktop, um, the little applet runs almost like a, an ICE candidate or a, it, it just shows up as a candidate in your candidate list in the SDP. So the cool part is the media doesn't go over the RDP session. So we're not using RDP and you're not using like uh, the ICA stuff or anything else. Um, the media goes directly from the link server or the endpoint that's sending it to the VDI endpoint running locally on the machine. And that provides you a lot of options as far as, you know, you have some type of basically link compatible, so like a, almost a link certified thin client or what will be a link certified thin client probably on the OIP page before long. And that saves processing from going through the data centers or the terminal servers and things like that that aren't really meant for things like real-time media processing. And it's, it's just a huge deal to be able to control everything on screen like you're used to, but have local processing of the audio and video and things like that. So I think this is a huge deal. It really, you know, it, it opens up the potential for link installations into places that it wasn't open before. And I, you know, I think it's going to be a really big deal, really helpful for us. Yeah, I really think the VDI option is uh, great. And um, I heard that it works both for virtual uh, virtual computer that you have uh, in the backend as well as a terminal server environment. Is that true? Or uh, what do you guys think? Well, I, I don't know about the virtual itself, but it, it really the, the where it works only comes down to what the client or what the device that's running locally can do. So it just has to have a thin client that's capable of processing audio, so SRTP, and and be you know optimized to do that kind of thing. So I think it'll work with just about any scenario, whether that's a virtual desktop or whether that's RDP or Citrix. Yeah, and we know uh, VMware and uh, Citrix will uh, come with support as well. Well, I know they've they've been in talks of Citrix being with uh, within the support. Um, other than that, I. I don't know. I know that you know the Windows. The Windows embedded, obviously, that'll be there. Uh, I'm pretty sure Citrix will be there. Our VMware, I, I just don't know. You know, I hope so. Yeah, as far as VDI goes, I'm I'm looking forward to the two two customers that we're working with right now. Both of them would would like to use VDI, and uh, I'm looking forward to being able to have the uh, 2013 VDI client available to us. I did notice one of the things that I noticed in the limitations, and I'm not exactly sure why this, maybe some of the rest of you can chime in on it. Office 365 is not supported. Um, and maybe some of you that work with Office 365 might know why that is, but that is one of the known limitations. Hmm. You know, I don't know. I could only speculate, but I'll, I'll save that for, uh, for when we have facts. <laughs> mm-hmm. And another another limitation, and maybe this is focusing too much on the limitations because it's really, really going to be nice to have a simple simple solution like it looks like it is. Another thing is Link Phone Edition is not a supported scenario as well, so you're you're going to be looking at a soft client. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's expected because if you're if you're using Link Phone Edition, then you're really relying on you know the tethering. So I, I'm assuming you know LPE, you're tethering, and you've got USB redirection. That probably, I mean, I've seen that work before. I'm not sure that it's a supported scenario, right? But it's just a USB redirect, and the media is going to the phone in most of those circumstances. So I, I don't see the benefit necessarily of LPE in this scenario. I think it's more of a get an optimized device. Uh, as far as endpoint goes, like a headset or something like that, mm-hmm. and get an get an optimized and certified thin client and give it to the users. I mean, part of the idea of you know having these these thin clients is to reduce your hardware footprint and hardware cost. And you don't do that when you're mixing those with LPE because you're doubling your port count, possibly depending on the device you choose, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and you're you're spending three hundred dollars on a phone to sit next to a three hundred dollar. Um, thin client or $400 thin client. I mean, I don't know the exact price is right. By the time you add all that up, why haven't you just bought a, a laptop? Mm-hmm. Interesting. We'll have to see how that plays out. Moving on, uh, some of the guys here have taken some of the newer exchange exams uh, that have become exa- available. Uh, John Cook, who's normally on the podcast, took several of them yesterday. And um, some of the other guys wanted to talk about uh, what to expect and, and what we know about them. Johan, what did you want to say? Well, I took the first one of the exchange uh, exams. That's the 7341, as it will be when it will be uh, publicly uh, available. Um, and I'm worth taking the, the next one uh, next Monday. So I'm pretty curious uh, how tough it will be. The, the first one was, yeah, if you're experienced with exchange, yeah, it was it was good to do. And if you, uh, what I did was uh, I watched the uh, the, the uh, TechEd videos uh, from uh, TechEd Australia, then the exchange sessions, and uh, yeah, if you look to those videos, yeah, you got you get a lot of info uh, which you really need uh, to uh, to pass the exam. And I uh, I think uh, if you've been to Mac, yeah, it will be a plus also because yeah. Uh, Mac was all exchanged, so probably uh, more has been told than on a uh, whole tech at uh, Australia. And, uh, on the msdigist.net uh, uh, website, uh, it's uh, published that it will be uh, publicly available at uh, the end of uh, January 2030. Uh, we will uh, place the link in our in a summary of this uh, episode. And uh, Dave is planning to do the exams. Uh, he told me. So, Dave, how are you preparing for it? Uh, yeah, well, um, um, f- f- first off, uh, uh, I'm, I'm probably, uh, as you said, uh, I'm probably going to watch all the uh, 2013 videos of the Tech at uh, Australia, uh, perhaps even also those of the New Zealand um, um, uh, uh, Tech at, uh, they probably have a lot of overlap but sometimes you just have one little piece of information that uh, could could change your your exam result um, and well basically going to uh, also read a lot of blog posts the the, the exchange team blog is also a, a very important uh, uh, source of information uh, uh, TechNet itself or uh, the, the downloadable uh, help file um, for instance, also has a lot of information that could be very helpful. Um, uh, but I think that uh, next to that, 
um, the um, 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 the 2013 um, download, uh, the Exchange 2013 download is uh, probably also a very good source of uh, uh, um, experience, uh, at least. Um, it, it also yeah, but, 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 but keep in mind that the uh, the bad exams are built on the uh, tech preview, so yeah, yeah. Well, you exactly. might get questions which have changed in the in the RTM version. Yeah, that that was something I I, I noticed that uh, the, the current exams are, are beta exams, so um, that also means that you probably have to wait for your results. Uh, but also, if you go to the Microsoft site, uh, it it states ex explicitly that it is based on the Microsoft Exchange uh, 2013 customer preview. Um, yeah. And 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 as you said, uh, January the 15th, 2013, the RTM. Um, uh, version will be released. So, uh, yeah, that, that's a very important thing that uh, that you mentioned is that uh, if you're going to, uh, and, and that, that is something I'm probably going to do, um, if you're going to build a demo uh, lab um, or, an, or uh, just an, uh, a practice lab, uh, use the customer preview. Uh, but even so, it's, it's probably, uh, well, that is the downside of doing a beta exam is that yeah. um, I'm, I'm probably not going to be surprised if there are differences between uh, the actual customer preview and what what is asked during the beta exam. So uh, that that is uh, something uh, well that well something that I will see. Um, but yeah, well uh, next to that, well especially the the, the Microsoft uh, Learning site uh, has a, t a tab on the specific exam with skill measured so you can see what kind of topics are asked uh, on the exam so you can can prepare uh, more directly on that um, I, I, I haven't uh, examined them um, very uh, deeply uh, one, one concern for me is that uh, during exchange 2010 uh, the two exams I think they were uh, 662 and 663 or anything like that um, is that um, there was uh, almost no uh, unified messaging content of the unified messaging role only content on how to install the role and nothing uh, in it that um, contains on, 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 on the hunt groups or, or anything like configuration and stuff like that uh, Microsoft always said that you have to ha get that information somewhere else um, but that wasn't well, not really an issue because um, it it um, was an optional role, and um, in my experience, it wasn't even a role that a lot of um, people uh, used, at, at least in the Netherlands. I think that uh, most of us, uh, well, we discussed that during uh, the the event uh, last uh, Wednesday. That I think that only one of the uh, eight uh, uh, specialist uh, presenters only one of them had uh, actual experience with the UM role but as we all know in 2013 the UM role is just uh, present in the uh, mailbox uh, role the 2013 mailbox role so I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that well I'm, I'm fearing that we're going to get a lot of uh, UM questions 
I'm not sure, and I, and then after I have to, taken the exam, I probably uh, can't mention anything about that because of the NDA you have to uh, to uh, agree with. Um, but yeah, uh, that's a problem because yeah, I I know uh, I know a lot about about the first exam, and I know on which topics they will focus. But yeah, it's still NDA and and, and rightly uh, so because e that even if they, even if they are published, you 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 can't tell much about it if you're reading the, the small letters because yeah 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 so from a format perspective um was the format of the test any different than in than previous tests you've taken yeah yeah um well for most of the part it wasn't but um they've introduced some scenarios which they also did with uh with the link beta exams um yeah there's there's a new uh, type of um question where you have to move some things to specific places and uh, both John and I had a discussion about it because um the screen resolution of the XM application was um yeah, not that high that you need to uh modify your complete uh, screen to uh, to answer some questions and yeah I also gave a comment that that was very irritating uh, to me. Okay. Well, actually, I, uh, our company has a as a exam lab in uh, in the main office, so we can take our own exams. Um, I'll I'll mention that to them, and I'm not sure what they can do and allowed to do uh, to, to ah. change anything about that. But I'll I'll keep that in mind. That's a that's a good tip. But that's probably yeah, also that, something that that is a downside of taking a beta exam. Yeah, but I don't think they're gonna do much about it uh, and can't do much about it because you know, I think the application all test centers are using is the same and is optimized for a specific uh, uh, resolution, which is uh, I don't know what it was, but it looked like uh, 800 by 600 uh, to me. Yeah, that was, was not pretty high. Yeah, they're very conservative uh, with the, the the lab. But well, I, I hope that that is uh, well. I, if that's the case, if it's uh, very uh, well, we have a survey at the end. I'm I'm guessing so. Probably gets uh, going to add some feedback there. Uh, yeah. Uh, and and perhaps uh, something we're going to see in 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 the 2013 uh, years that the lab uh, requirements have to of the exam requirements have to be changed for the, com the exam computers but uh, well we have to wait and see and uh, well um, uh, it, it's uh, I'm uh, very excited to do them and, and learn and uh, learn uh, also from the exam themselves so and yeah keep, keep you posted because, uh, yeah because there's one thing which I would like to mention as as last thing is that uh, you can also do the beta exams without the specific codes, and but <clears throat> then you will have to uh, have to pay for them, and, and right. that's something new, I think. Uh, and it's one hundred fifty euros or dollars for per exam, I thought. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. It's just the normal uh, exam price. Um, yeah. I. I've I didn't have any promo codes. Uh, it turned out that my colleague had one. Um, uh, well, what we are going to do, I, I've already planned and booked one exam, so that's going to cost us. But my company pays that, so that, that's um, lucky okay. me. 
uh, but <laughs> I'm going to try to get the, those uh, codes for the second exam. I didn't plan that or book that yet because, uh, well, perhaps I think, okay. yeah, well, because we have an own, own exam lab, uh, we can just plan it on site and uh, I can continue whenever I want. So, but yeah, that that is uh, one thing to to keep in mind if you're going to do a beta. Uh, that there are a lot of downsides. It's just because we are so nuts and and want to do want to get the certification a lot of uh, uh, as as one of the first people that we are willing to do that. So, yeah. All right. Good info. Moving along and switching to the link side, uh, we wanted to give a, a brief um, shout out to uh, to Matt Landis and uh, his book, um, Microsoft Link Server 2013, Step-by-Step for Anyone. And uh, Matt, tell us a little bit about the book and how people can get it and what's in it. Yeah, well, Microsoft Link, Sur- uh, Link Server 2013, Step-by-Step for Anyone it uh, started out in life as blog posts, and uh, I remember looking at one of the blog posts and saying, this blog post is about as long as a chapter in a book. And uh, so what we did is we really took a bunch of very long blog posts and compiled them in a book, uh, ebook PDF format. And what it does is it truly takes you step by step. Uh, you don't need any linking experience. You can set up a link lab, just follow step by step. That's really what the book is. Um, so if you're thinking, you know, if you're wanting to set up a link lab and you want to get started, and this book will take you step by step. And it's not really, it's not really competition with uh, Link Server 2013 Unleashed by Alex, Tom, and Randy. Um, their book is much, much more comprehensive, much more detailed coverage. But if you're looking for a book that you can just grab and get started at installing your first Link Lab, then Link Server 2013 Step by Step will really get you going. Oh. Um, it w- Go ahead. Does it also explain some of the um, uh, topics uh, surrounding um, the, 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 the voice capabilities and stuff like that because I'm from the exchange side uh, I, I, the phone thing that's really, really scary for me so does it also uh, guide um, um, those people who don't have any phone uh, experience with terms and principles and stuff like that or is it mainly link focused? Well, it's, it's, it's a book that's in progress. We do have a chapter currently that's on features like call park, um, response, setting up response groups, that type of thing. Um, it's, it's a book that's in process. We, I kind of think of it as an experiment in a live book that is continuously updated. So those, what you, what you said there on the voice features, we tend or we're planning to add chapters on voice, more voice features as well. Um, so it was. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm certainly going to check that out because uh, my link knowledge is uh, is uh, well absent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the the added benefits is the fact that it's free, and it's on the uh, the TechNet Gallery, and we'll certainly put a link to that on the summary page. And it was written using the preview, but we are getting feedback that it's working fine with RTM. So it uh, works either way. 
Um, I wasn't sure how how it would be received, but we, we at this point there's over 4,500 downloads, so we were impressed by the by what people are by how many people are downloading and using it. And one of the one one of the things that is also happening right now, um, there was interest in translating it, and it's actually currently in the process of being translated into two languages. And uh, so that's some of the things that are happening with that book. Welcome to get it. It's it's free. Excellent. Wow, that's uh, impressive, and uh, I think it really shows uh, the the community around the, the Microsoft products that uh, you have all this information for free. It's yeah, great. yeah, very much. I, I hey, I appreciate all I've gotten, and I'm glad to give a little back in. Outstanding. I'll certainly take a look at that as well. And uh, Matt, while we've got you, our uh, Matt Landis tip of the episode, uh, what do you have for us this time, Matt? Okay, well, Link 2013 has some new OneNote integration enhancements. Um, OneNote, uh, Link 2010 had some very basic OneNote integration, but Link 2013 has enhanced this uh, in a couple ways. Uh, one, uh, There's two, two different ways that OneNote integration works. One is My Notes and Shared Notes. And my notes in Link 2010, you would click on it, it would open a OneNote and pretty much add the date and time in the meeting participants. And that's how Link 2013 does, but it adds another little trick. And that is when it adds the contacts, they are live contact cards. So you can hold your mouse over, see the presence. Um, so just a little bit of an enhancement there. And on shared notes uh, with OneNote, it makes it really efficient and handy to distribute OneNote with meeting participants. You just click on share OneNote and the meeting participants will get a notification that there, uh, that there is a OneNote that they can get access to. And the one thing to keep in mind, I won't spend a lot of time on it. You can go to the blog post because there are some details, but the one thing to keep in mind, Link does not give uh, rights to the OneNote. You have to assign the users that have access to the OneNote before you share it. Uh, because it's using OneNote's methods of sharing. Uh, people have to have access to it, but it will distribute the link so that they can access the OneNote. So just some OneNote integration enhancements that come with Link 2013. Oh, excellent. I'm a, I'm a big fan of OneNote and, of course, a big fan of uh, Link, so I love to use them together. And we'll, cert- we'll certainly put a link to, uh, to the, your blog post on that tip uh, on the summary page. Uh, moving along to a couple of questions that uh, some of us have received since the last episode. Uh, the first one is uh, somebody asked me, uh, I want to add enterprise voice in a remote office. What's required? Uh, do I need an SBA or a full server? Uh, and what are the uh, ramifications of doing each? So Stahl, uh, you had some thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. So I'm going to keep this... Uh uh, quick and easy and uh, we could actually talk about this uh, for quite some time because it's it's a big uh, design decision actually so um, uh, it really boils down to what you need in that um, uh, remote office uh, how many users there are there and uh, what kind of uh, server environment uh, you have uh, at that uh, location so uh, your choices are uh, actually a few. Uh, you can uh, uh, p- 
put an SBA in there, and SBA stands for Survival Branch Appliance. So it's it's uh, actually a box you put in there, and it has a PSDN gateway, and uh, it has a mediation server, and uh, it actually registers your local link users. So uh, the local link link users will have um, a local breakout for uh, dialing out. And uh, this kind of box is used for um, about 25 to 1,000 uh, users. And um, the thing is that um, uh, if um, you lose the, the WAN connection or the main data center servers uh, are unreachable, uh, the users that are in the branch office is um, uh, in, will go into a resiliency mode. Uh, that means um, you will um, have uh, basic functionality like uh, you can chat and uh, you can do actually peer-to-peer um, uh, -peer calls and you can do uh, PSDN calls. What you do, can't do, you can't do uh, response, uh, be part of response groups, you can't do conferencing and uh, so it's um, an appliance to make sure you can dial out if, if you lose your WAN connection. The other choice you have is actually um, to have a, um, a server there um, with the same kind of functionality but uh, more scaled for about 1,000 to 5,000 users. And then you have a mediation server and you have a PSDN gateway uh, outside of that uh, link um, server. So you can do zip trunking or, or PSDN or what you can. So uh, the third option is actually deploying another pool at that uh, branch site and have full functionality. And uh, it depends actually on um, uh, uh, how far away your main data center are. So um, uh, yeah, that was the short version. And um, Kevin and Matt probably have some good experiences and tips uh, around that and uh, something I forgot to, to, to mention. No, you did You did very good. One of the things when I explain to people what an SBA or a survivable branch appliance does, they always wonder, well, what's it going to all keep running? And a simple way to, that I, the way I explain it is just think of it, it's a link server that only has the link registrar service and the mediation service running on it. That's it. So that, that kind of, that way they know what's running on it. So they know in, what that, it can do. In, in that scenario... Uh, let's say we have uh, an office in New York City uh, where the data center is and an office in, say, London where we're thinking about putting an SBA in. Um, if, if you have users in each office that are doing a lot of conferencing, then that conferencing is likely still all coming back to the data center, correct? Correct. So, okay. So an SBA doesn't solve that. Right, and it's it's actually really important to remember that the SBA doesn't provide any of the defined user services, so it is purely a registrar and an S and uh, a mediation role. It does not do things like store contact lists, 
um, any of the meeting information for the person, any kind of conferencing, any kind of response groups, any of that stuff. So the, the big thing I always like to point out when you're trying to make the design design decision between an SBA, the survivable branch appliance, and SBS, which is a survivable branch server, which is just like the SBA, just a little beefier, doesn't have the built-in gateway and you can run it on you know, a hypervisor platform of some type or having a pool there. What it really comes down to are, A, what functionalities do you need when the WAN isn't available, and B, how many people do you need them for? And then you can kind of throw in on the end of that, how do we make it available or do we need to have it available from a remote standpoint if the WAN's unavailable? So let's say I'm homed on an SBA, right? And I my SBA is down, or the WAN connection between my SBA and between my data center is down. When I'm a remote user, what's that experience like for me? Because I'm not going to my SBA, so now I'm not making calls. So now I have to plan for things like backup routes and backup usages and stuff like that. So there's a lot to it, right? The, but the really critical things are how many people do I need it for and what services do I need? And that leads you to the question of, you know, well, do I do a standard edition? Now do I do an enterprise pool? You know, you were talking about a, a scenario that sounds really familiar, Pat. I think we've talked about it a few times. You know, I've got a New York office with a data center and a London office without a data center or maybe with a data center. You know, what are the driving factors for me? And, you know, conferencing is a huge factor. But the other one that's really going to be a big factor is PSTN breakout, right? Because... What's the likelihood that you're going to fail your PSTN from the U.S. to Europe and back and forth? And that that kind of has to come into play as well. So, you know, there are lots and lots and lots of things to consider about that. And then you have to start thinking about disaster recovery, too. Yeah, and high availability, high availability as well. Right. So, yeah, resident lines and uh, yeah, failover and... Yeah, yeah, and I, I think there's no real easy formula, right? But I think the the easiest way to start the decision is how many people and what services, and how critical are those people? Right. I mean, there's um, a pretty well funded foundation that does a lot of uh, uh, charity work, and they've got you know SBAs pretty much everywhere that any other people could be. The catch is if I'm a user homed in a, a data center and I go to an office that's just got an SBA and I'm not homed on the SBA, then it doesn't work for me anyway. So, you know, what are you buying there for the users who are traveling? If you have lots and lots of people who bounce from office to office, which is getting more and more common, what is the SBA really getting you? Yeah, and sometimes it may be um, easy to just deploy a link server and um yeah you know, <laughs> I'm, it's simple you know i'm almost more of a fan these days of just getting an internet connection and having a, a a plan to fail out to the internet connection if the the location goes away when you have an extremely mobile workforce you know if you've got an office where the people are always in their seats every day then yeah an sba is a great option but if people bounce in and out from place to place all the time which is just more and more common nowadays the sbas almost don't even buy you anything and one of the nice things about an SBA, too, is um, the setup and configuration is fairly straightforward, that somebody in the data center can do it, ship the box out to uh, the branch office and have them plug it in, and you're up and running. It's it's essentially a, you know, a server in a box, um, and you don't have to have somebody at the local office that's a link person. Um, it's It's pretty straightforward to manage that from the data center. 
yeah, from a management standpoint, backups and stuff like that, it's so much easier to just have that SBA because all you're really looking at is a certificate that can be regenerated and a gateway config. And uh, the SBAs are fairly inexpensive compared to you know putting a physical box out there uh, just to provide those those limited services. And uh, moving along to uh, the next question that we have, um, another link question. What's an SBC and why do I need one or not? And uh, Kevin, why don't you take that? Okay. Well, I like to think of an SBC as a firewall for your phones. Um, that's, that's kind of how I've always thought of them. Uh, SBC stands for Session Border Controller. And when you start talking about SBCs, you know, most of the gateways out there these days are SBCs, so it's almost kind of one and the same. When you, when you think about the Net UX series, the Audio Code series, the Acme packets, the Sonus stuff, those are all SBCs as well. And what I like to think of the, as the SBC's role is to take the untrusted networks that you know, are carrying your, your, uh, either your SIP trunk or your T1s or whatever. These are untrusted networks, right? And we don't take untrusted networks and put them into our privileged internal networks. So I kind of look at the SPC as just providing that firewall, that interface in between. And then just like a, you know, a regular firewall does, we do some kind of form of NAT almost with the, with the SPCs, where instead of NATing you know, public IPs to private IPs, we might be doing you know, normalization and things like that, taking um, inbound call numbers. So say, for example, you only get four digits um, in your DNS from the carrier, then we're converting it into an E164 and sending it to link, and then we're bringing it back out. And the nice thing about you know, having the SPCs there is you can create rules that are local to that connection. So let's say we have two sites, maybe one's in New York and one's in London, and they have different call rules, right? From a link standpoint, we want to do everything in E164, which is, you know, a globally unique phone number gets routed out at all times. So your number that you show is what you're coming from is globally, globally unique. And the number you're dialing needs to be globally unique. So that's great in theory, but then you get to two different carriers, carriers who want two different things. So you can get into converting um, your E164 numbers. Like, for example, in the U.S., it's a plus one, five one three five 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 one two one two, right? But your carrier might not want that number coming out with a plus one on it, or they might not want your caller ID with a plus one on it. So you have the opportunity to do that at the SBC as well. Now, it's really cool that you can do that with um, Link 2013 now, which you couldn't do in 2010. You can You can modify some of those numbers. But I've always been a bigger fan of doing that at the gateway, just because when I get into scenarios where I'm failing calls from one data center to another and things like that, I want all the calls to go out in an E164 format, and I want the gateway to handle whatever's local. And that means there's a lot less to manage. So other than those particular features, why would an SBC be beneficial over, say, just a conventional firewall? Well, so really a conventional firewall is not set up to handle SIP traffic. So um, an SBC oftentimes acts as a back-to-back user agent as well, which is the same thing the mediation server does. And that's where on one side it's acting as the client. So let's say the connection coming in from the PSTN or the SIP trunk, the gateway acts like a client on that side and says, hey, I'm your client, give me all your information. And then when it 
connects over to the mediation server, it's acting as a server and providing that information back. And there's all kinds of reasons you might need that, you know, to, you know, first of all, to set up a perimeter, second of all, to maybe do some manipulations. We've done really cool things in the past with SBCs where we actually have the SBC dual forking into two different phone systems or three different phone systems. And that's not something you can do with a, a regular firewall either. So when it comes down to it, it's, it's more of an application layer firewall type thing than necessarily just a, a dumb internet firewall. But I like to use that analogy still because it kind of makes people understand, hey, I have to think of my phone connections like I think of my internet connection and I have to protect my networks because I'm allowing this new traffic onto it. So do you have traffic coming directly into the SBC and from there into your mediation server or do you still typically go through a firewall and then to your SBC? Well, it really depends. So uh, a lot of times you do a SIP trunk, you're going to get that over MPLS. I really hope you're not getting it over uh, VPN and internet. Uh, I've seen that lately and it's it's a really bad trend. You can't control quality over the internet. You certainly should never send media over a VPN that's not set up for it. Um, so I, I see it as, you know, if if you have an MPLS connection, you trust the carrier, possibly, you know, because... When you get an MPLS connection, you're plugging it straight into a router, and that's just doing a transform and putting it into your regular network with your regular MPLS. So the SIP trunk, it's not too much different, right? You've still got that layer of security since the, it's writing in on an MPLS that you somewhat trust, right? Now, if you're doing something where you have public internet coming in and hitting your SBC, then yeah, you definitely need to firewall that. But you have to be really cautious with the firewall. Because you know, firewalls don't have any kind of idea of queuing and, and, and prioritization you know, built, built in, typically. You might be able to make it work somehow, but if you're going to firewall your SIP trunks, you need to do it with a dedicated piece of equipment and not have it be the same firewall that's providing internet protection and everything else. Because it starts to get DDoS from the internet, then your, your phone connection is going to go down too. Wow, that's a very good point. Good stuff. And that takes care of our questions from users. Um, the only thing we have uh, for events is, um, Kevin, you wanted to talk about your UC user group and what that uh, is doing for people. Yeah, so um, it's not just mine. Uh, it's for everybody, right? Um, along with Randy Wennell and Adam Curry, so, so um, you, at UC Made Easy or blog.ucmadeeasy.com, and Adam Curry is mostly UC or at mostly UC and mostly UC.com, um, we started a nonprofit to start putting together user group events. And the nonprofit's really just there to make it easier for us to deal with the, the cost and the tax burdens of running user groups um, because there is always some cost involved. Um, so what we've done is we, we created a, a national nonprofit, and we've got six groups running now. Um, we just kicked off Chicago last Thursday, had an amazing turnout there. We actually were over-registered attendance, which we've never had happen before. And I, I was up in Chicago for that. Jeff Schertz did a, a presentation and did a great job as always. And then Tuesday we did Nashville. So right now we're doing six cities um, across the U.S. and we're adding an additional four cities that are planned right now in the coming year. And the goal is just basically to provide you know, user education for anybody who wants to learn about Link. We typically do hit levels 100 to 400. Um, we try to stay closer to 200 and 300 than going into 400, but we've had, you know, groups that are specifically, you know, hey, we want to we want to deep dive on edge for an hour, and we're happy to do it. Uh, and we just provide good, solid content across all the groups. It's 
and it's kind of consistent. So, you know, if you're not able to make it to your hometown and you're traveling, like, like Pat's had happen, he can jump into the New York group and see the same content as he might in Detroit or Cincinnati. So it makes it easier for all of us because we're, you know, only pre- um, creating the content once per quarter instead of when we were all creating different content every quarter. And it makes it better for the users because, or the, the, the members, because, you know, they get to see that consistent content everywhere. And um, I think, geez, we're about 400 members now, and, and we're growing every every day, it seems like. I get a I get an email every time somebody joins, and my phone sometimes is just sitting there dancing before events for people joining and signing up. <laughs> so it's a great thing. And so where can people find out more information about this? Yeah, good question. Uh, I should have plugged the site, right? Um, you can go to www.linkusersgroup.com. And you'll see all the different sites that we're currently doing. Um, these aren't the only link users groups in the world, right? These are just the ones that are associated with our nonprofit. Um, so you can see all that there. And if if you go there and you don't see a city and you'd like to see your city on there, you know, send an email to us. There's a contact button, or you can just send it to board at linkusersgroup.com. And if we get enough interest, you know, we're happy to start them anywhere where we have support. And you guys are putting together some uh, some interesting things to give away at some of your meetings, too. Yeah, I, I won't talk about next quarter yet, but we've got some cool ideas that might have been a topic uh, earlier in today's uh, discussion. <laughs> that wasn't a big enough hint, right? Um, but we did just give away a bunch of Xboxes, and uh, we have a, a lot of really great sponsors like Audio Codes, NET, Sonus, and Jobber and Plantronics, and we have some really great deals. Everybody who joins our groups... Um, Plantronics did this really cool thing where they give everybody who's a member a free device of their choosing. So you just have to join and show up to a meeting, and then we'll give you the informa- information, and you can pick up your Jabra or your your Plantronics device. And we've also given away some Speak 410s and some other Jabra stuff, and plenty of Plantronics stuff. And you know, we actually at one of the events we gave away an NET gateway. So we've we've had some not one of the big ones one of the one of the smaller you know uh, four port um, FXO FXS dudes so not some huge UX two thousand or something but you know our, our sponsors have been really great and you know helping us Unify Square is a sponsor where I work and Microsoft's a sponsor as well and you know we just we take all that you know sponsorship and try and use it to get cool stuff in everybody's hands. Yeah, and I know that at least in in Detroit and in New York, the meetings are at the actual Microsoft the local Microsoft offices. Yeah, that's that's actually where we have them all. Microsoft is nice enough to give us the space whenever we need it. We just have to let them know, and that saves the group money, so we don't have to spend money on things like that. And that allows us to buy more prizes, so more people show up, and the groups get bigger, and more people learn about Link. Outstanding. Well, thanks for that information, and we'll certainly uh, put a link to that uh, website on our summary site, uh, summary Great. page. Great, thank you. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much takes care of it for this week. I'd like to thank the co-hosts for this episode, uh, Stahl, Michelle, Dave, and Johan. And, of course, our two special guests, Matt and Kevin. Thanks, guys, for uh, stopping by. And uh, our producer, Dave Stork, who uh, keeps us uh, somewhat on track, although it's it's kind of hard to keep a runaway train on track. And uh, uh, our editor, of course, the, uh, the unflappable Michael Van Hornbeek, who uh, does a good job of editing out all of our noises and, and uh, making us sound good. So thanks to those guys. We'd like to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Visit our website at www.theucarchitects.com. 
Uh, we're on Twitter at the UC Architects, and we have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash the UC Architects. And be sure to check out our LinkedIn group. Our podcast episodes are available in the iTunes Store, the Zoom Marketplace, and in your favorite RSS client like Outlook. See our website uh, for links to everything. Thanks for stopping by, and we'll see you back for the next episode with Steve Hosting. Thank you.